Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. As Lance said, we're beginning our study of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Perhaps you you, uh, heard a little boy who once asked his father what God's name was, and his dad said, well, his his name uh, is many, he has many names. There's El Elyon and El Shaddai, Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh. And his his son said, "Ah, Dad, that's kind of hard. Can't I just call him Steve? (laughs) Who is God? Who is he really? Not as we imagine him to be or might wish him to be, but who is God as he is? The book of Isaiah is fundamentally a book about the nature of God and how that God interacts with his creation. Secondarily, it is about his servants and how his servants respond to him as he reveals himself and he reveals his will. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at Isaiah chapter 6 in which God reveals himself in a really powerful and dramatic way to the prophet. I want us to read together Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah begins his prophecy in a moment of crisis in the history of Israel. The king of Israel has died or is dying. And Isaiah has a vision of the true king in his throne room in heaven. Now, a little bit of background will help us to understand this entire book. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet. He's prophesying from the southern kingdom, from Judah. His name means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. And his name really represents what is fundamental to his message. As the nation is surrounded by all kinds of threats and enemies, The question before them is, will they turn to the Lord and say, the Lord saves, or will they turn to their own strength or to other uh, human powers that can rescue them? Will they trust in the Lord alone? Will they believe Yahweh saves? Isaiah is a very interesting character. He's married to a a prophetess. He himself was a prophet. Dinner conversation is probably pretty interesting. (laughs) Prophet and prophetess going back and forth. They had two children who had uh, very catchy names. Sher Yashub and Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So as we were picking out a name for our son, we were wrestling. You know, Benjamin or... We stuck with Benjamin, and he's grateful. <laughs> Just shorten it. He had a long prophetic ministry, 55 years, that was literally, according to, to tradition, cut short. He was sawn in two by Manasseh. But he had a very long ministry during a time of a political and national crisis. I want to put this in historical and geographical context for you. You'll see Judah there in the middle, in the box. Uh, Isaiah was from the nation of Judah. He lived in Jerusalem. But surrounding Judah were enemies everywhere. Uh, Nations stronger and more powerful than the nation of Judah. In particular, the Assyrians at this point in time were the most powerful nation on earth and they were exceedingly cruel and they were conquering all nations around them. As a result, some of the smaller nations banded together in order to resist them. 
and they tried to get Judah to join in their coalition against the Assyrians. So particularly, if you look here on the right, Israel and Syria to the north said, join us, Judah, or die. Join us or perish. And you'll remember that Israel and Judah used to be one nation from the family of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, the 12 sons, this nation split. 10 went to the north and they were called Israel or in the book of Isaiah, sometimes Ephraim. And two of the tribes stayed in the south and became the nation of Judah. Israel and Syria, Syria were the most immediate threat to Judah. And the question before the nation would be, will we trust in the Lord? Will we believe that Yahweh saves Isaiah began his prophetic ministry in the days of Uzziah. Apparently, he was a relative of Uzziah. Isaiah apparently was a member of the royal family, so he was something of a court preacher. He was living in Jerusalem, prophesying to the king in the court to a man who was a relative of his, older but a relative. Uzziah's name means Yahweh is my strength. Yahweh is my strength. I want you to keep your place here in Isaiah 6, back there in just a moment, and turn uh, back in the Old Testament to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1. It says, All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. Now Amaziah had been a, a relatively good king, but toward the end of his life he had engaged in some pretty foolish military exploits, and he was assassinated. And so they came and they took his 16-year-old son and they put him on the throne. Verse 2, he built Elot and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now there's a little foreshadowing because he didn't always trust that God was his strength. As he grew stronger and stronger and stronger under the blessing of the Lord, he became proud And he began to turn against God and ignore God. Look with me over in chapter 26, verse 14. It says, Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped. Until he was strong. What happened in the days of Uzziah, his long reign, is that the borders of the nation were extended. And other nations began to pay tribute to the nation of Judah. They were strong militarily. His fame began to grow. But in his fame, he became proud. Verse 16, it says, When he was strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. 
But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Uzziah was a bright star. He offered a lot of hope for the nation. There was safety around from their enemies. There was financial prosperity. And then in this moment of disillusionment, when now the king has become leprous and he is dying, Isaiah has a fresh vision of the true king. God removes Isaiah's eyes from a false hope and puts it on only the Lord God. Look at me back again in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I saw Adonai. I saw the sovereign, the one true king, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. When he sees the earthly king dying, God refreshes his vision of the true king, the one true king. He looks into the heavens. We don't know if he physically transported there or spiritually transported there, but he is actually in uh, the palace of God. This is God's home and this is God's throne room. And he has a vision of God. What does he see? We're told throughout the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, that no one can see God and live. So what is it that Isaiah sees? I'm going to read to you from John chapter 12, verse 39. John is quoting from this passage, Isaiah chapter 6. He says, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him, that is, Jesus Christ. In other words, I think what Isaiah saw was a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, just like Ezekiel had seen. He saw a veiled form of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ before he had come to earth. And you'll notice in his vision that all that he can describe is up to the hem of Christ's robe. But all around him, he is overwhelmed by this vision. Every sense that he has is inflamed by this vision of God. First of all, he sees the seraphim, who are literally burning ones. Seraphim means to be one who is burning He sees these angels as if they are on fire. His eyes are lit up. He's seeing the glory of God and these fiery angels all around. He's hearing their wings flapping. In humility, they have their eyes covered and their feet covered, but their other of the six wings are flapping. He hears the sound. 
his sense of smell is overwhelmed. The incense and the smoke is pouring out from the temple of God. If you've ever been in a church where they burn incense, you know as you walk in, immediately all of your senses are inflamed. He's smelling things. He's seeing things. He's hearing things. These angels are singing back and forth this song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God of hosts. And when they sing, they sing so loudly that the whole place is shaking. Now, I know some of you think our music is a little loud once in a while, right? This is nothing compared to this vision that Isaiah sees. Remember, he's only at the threshold. He can only get to the doorway. And as he stands in the doorway, he is shaking physically. He needs to cover his ears. It is so loud. His eyes are filled with flames of fire. It's an overpowering vision of God. I wish that I could duplicate it. Now, I wish you, you could come in this morning and, you know, we had like a 4D auditorium and you just, you know, you could get, you know, your seats move around as, as I speak and, you know, th- things fly at you and smoke and maybe, I don't know, water vapor like they do. And it just, but everything's just so that you could get entirely engaged or, or even better that, that I could just stop preaching and all of a sudden God would just shake the place. I don't know about you, but I, I, I wish that I could have what Isaiah got to have. And you know, we will someday, right? We will be in the presence of God. And what happens for Isaiah is what I hope that God can cause to happen for us, even if we don't see exactly what he got to see. And that is that all false hopes were removed. And all false fears were removed because as Isaiah has this vision, there is room for no one else. God's presence fills the place. The smoke billows out and Isaiah cannot come near. There is room for no one else on the throne. What is revealed to Isaiah is, in a sense, the very nature of God and the very essence of sin. God is all in all, and to put anything or anyone else in his place is the essence of sin. It's idolatry. But when this earthly king, who started so well but ended in such utter failure, when he is removed, Isaiah is able to have a fresh vision of the true king, and he sees there is no reason to fear the nations around. There's no reason to put hope in anything other than God. Isaiah is drawn into the very presence of God and the king is exalted. And what he learns about this king is that he is holy, holy, holy. He says, I saw a vision of the king. And what I heard there is that he's holy, holy, holy. You know, in Hebrew literature, that repetition is used for emphasis. So in the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve are told, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. They're told if you eat, You will surely die. It says literally, you will die, die. But of all the rest of these trees, you may literally eat, eat, eat freely. Just eat and eat and eat. But you know, throughout the Bible, the only place that I can find that a word is repeated three times for emphasis is in the presence of God. It is about the nature of God and that he is holy, holy, holy. And we see this same vision at the end of the Bible. Book of Revelation, it says the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
They're full of eyes around and within and day and night. They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty who was and who is and who is to come. In other words, he has established for himself from the time of all creation, a palace, a throne room. And in his throne room, there are these overwhelmingly powerful and beautiful creatures who are crying out day and night forever, shaking the threshold saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. What does it mean that God is holy? I'm going to give you four characteristics. First is this. Holiness means that God is wholly other. That is, he is entirely different. Beyond even of what we could conceive. Let me read to you again from A.W. Tozier. He wrote, We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Or as God will say later in the book of Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. I am not like you. You are not like me. I am entirely different. That's what holiness means. It means to be separate. God's beyond even the greatest things that we could think of. So for us to really understand him as he is, he must reveal himself to us. Holiness also means that God is morally perfect. Absolute moral perfection. Psalm chapter 5 verse 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. We know that God fills all things. He is omnipresent. So when it says that no evil dwells with God, that's not a physical thing. It's not an issue of proximity. Like no evil can get close to you. It means you have no fellowship with evil. You cannot sin. You will not sin. You have never sinned and you will not abide sin in fellowship with you. Because God, you are absolutely and utterly morally perfect. Third, God is whole or complete. To be holy means to be complete. Now, the history of the English word holy is illuminating here. It comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, holig, to be hale and hearty. That means to be healthy. A person who was holy was healthy. That is, their, their physical body was whole. It was lacking in nothing. There was no disease. Nothing foreign had entered in. Again, quoting from A.W. Tozier in The Knowledge of the Holy, he said, God is holy and has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of the universe. Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. God is complete. He's whole. He's perfect. He lacks in nothing. Finally, God's holiness is it's absolute. When he calls us to be holy, it's only relative. God's holiness is absolute. And what Isaiah experiences is this um, complete sensory overload experience of the holiness of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are, are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, God peers all the way into the depths of Isaiah's being. 
and his mind and his eyes, his ears, his smell, his whole body experiences the intrusion of the holiness of God and it absolutely overwhelms him. Notice how he responds. Verse five. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord who commands armies. Woe is me, I'm, I'm ruined, I'm destroyed, I'm undone. If you look back in chapter five, Isaiah has been saying, woe to everybody else. Okay? Woe to you and woe to you and woe to you. And he's calling out everyone else's sins. But then he has a fresh vision of God and he says, woe, woe to me. Hey, woe to me. Isaiah is under conviction And he responds perfectly to that conviction. Now, you may have noticed we started our study in chapter 6, not in chapter 1. And the reason for that is that Isaiah's experience is designed to be a, a paradigm for the experience of every servant of the Lord. Every person who would want to be a servant of the Lord should respond to the call of God just like Isaiah did. And so Isaiah is going to present a series of different servants of the Lord and how they respond to God. Israel was called to be the servant of the Lord. And next week we'll see how they responded to God's call on their lives. The spiritual leaders were servants of the Lord. The king was to be a servant of the Lord. And Isaiah will compare and contrast two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, and how they responded to the Lord. The Messiah is the servant of the Lord. And so you'll see this theme repeated throughout the book of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. And how does the servant respond? Isaiah's life is supposed to be a paradigm, a prototype. This is how to respond. And the way that Isaiah responds is in complete conviction of sin. And he responds by taking responsibility for his sin. He doesn't say, oh God, but I'm living among a nation of people who are sinners and they're dragging me down. It's not my fault. I live in an unholy society. How can I be expected to be holy or different or distinct? God, I'm a prophet. I'm being attacked by Satan. The devil made me do it. And he, he doesn't do that. As he doesn't deflect responsibility. He says, woe is me. In case you haven't figured it out, that is not human nature. Human nature is to put the blame on anyone else rather than ourselves. Uh, If you don't know that, have children. They're like mirrors for your soul. And you watch in a rather unsophisticated way the way that you deflect responsibility in their little bodies and actions, things that they do. Now, uh, let me just say, my kids are are great at picking up things. But once in a while, everything doesn't get picked up. So last week, uh, I I drove home. Remember, we had some some rainy nights and stuff. I drove home. As I drove in the driveway, I noticed that... um, my saw was laying in the grass and, and my shovel was laying in the grass and my hammer was laying in the grass and my rake was laying in the grass. Of course, some of their stuff, you know, their bikes were out too. I mean, it was, it was full yard sale going on, but I just noticed that some of my stuff was out there and, you know, and I came in, I, I go, kids, hey, wh- what's up? You know, my, my stuff's my tools in particular, they're laying in the yard and their response immediately, both of them in unison was, Mom called us in. So, of course, I said, Trissy, you know, it's her fault that they left all my my tools in the yard. It's very clear. And I understand it perfectly when they explained it to me like that. 
There are biblical illustrations everywhere. Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Adam, why'd you eat? That woman that you gave me, God, remember, you gave her to me. I I didn't even want the fruit. But she, Eve, the serpent, I didn't want it either. Deflect, deflect, deflect. My favorite illustration is um, Aaron, right? Aaron, when, when Moses goes up on the mountain and the people go, oh, Aaron's been up there a long time, must be dead. Aaron, we need a new God to take us back to Egypt. Will you make us a new God? And he says, bring me your gold, puts it in the fire, makes the calf. So Moses comes down and he, he sees this calf and the people are really, they're going crazy, right? Eating, drinking, whatever. I mean, it's a crazy scene. And he confronts Aaron and Aaron says, the people made me do it. I just threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> you know, it's the fire's fault. I didn't, I didn't want to make a calf. It's just the fire, just out came this calf. It's, you know, that is human nature. That is human nature. If you look at the example of Uzziah, when he is confronted with his sin, how does he respond? Do you see the parallels? Isaiah is at the threshold of the throne room of God and he will not and cannot enter. Uzziah in his pride boldly goes in to offer incense. And when he's told to get out, what happens? He's filled with rage. He has a censer in his hand. He's ready to fight. He's trying to pick a fight with the priests in the temple. He responds exactly the opposite of Isaiah. Isaiah says, woe is me. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And he's not saying I just have a problem with holding my tongue. What he's saying is, I am not worthy to be pronouncing woe on others. It's woe is me. I am not worthy like these angels to be singing out songs of praise to God because out of the heart the mouth speaks. I am corrupt down to the depths of my own soul. Woe is me. And because he is willing to take responsibility for his sin, God is able to step into his life and to cleanse him from his sin. Uzziah cannot be cleansed from his sin because he will not take responsibility for his sin. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. What I find most unusual about this verse is that Isaiah doesn't say anything about how much it it hurt. I don't know if that ever (laughs) jumped out at you, but there is a a coal, probably from the altar of, of incense, and this huge burning, on fire creature reaches in and comes at him with a coal. And I don't know if you've you've ever been burned anywhere before, but it hurts and your lips are extremely sensitive. And he comes and he, he puts it right on his lips, right on the point of conviction. And instantaneously, I don't know, without pain, his sin is removed. God takes the initiative. What's interesting is Isaiah appears doesn't even ask to have this sin removed. From Isaiah's perspective, he says, woe is me, I am ruined, I am, I'm destroyed, I am undone. This is the end of me. And so God, 
steps in, God initiates, God intervenes, and in an instant, in a moment, he removes all of Isaiah's sin. This word for iniquity is it's a beautiful word. It's very rich. It refers to both the act of sin and the guilt or the consequence from that sin and also the root that caused that action and produced the guilt. It's a very full and rich word. His iniquity is taken away. His sin, which is the common word for sin in the Old Testament, that missing of the mark, the mark being the perfect holiness of God, all of that is removed. And he is clean. As compared to Uzziah, who spends his entire life unclean. And because he is unclean, he is separated. He can't go into the temple ever again to worship. And he can't even live with his family. He lives in isolation for the rest of his life because that is the wage of sin. The wage of sin is death or separation. But when God initiates to cleanse us, we are restored to fellowship. The separation is removed and we're put back in relationship with God. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Our sins have created a separation between us and God. And what is required first is that we acknowledge it is our sin that's created the separation. And that we can't restore that fellowship. We need God to take the initiative. He has done that in Christ. And so Christ took all of the pain, all of the burning, so that we wouldn't have to take the pain for our sins. And the moment that we believe in that sacrifice on our behalf, our debt is completely removed forever and we're restored to fellowship. That is faith. It's not something that we can earn through our good works. We cannot remove the debt of our sin. We have to believe and receive that free gift of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And when we do that, we are restored to fellowship and also we're qualified to serve him. See, Isaiah's experience doesn't end here with cleansing. It goes on and God calls him into service. Notice in verse eight, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The heavenly host is all around. The Trinity is present. And God says, anyone? Anyone? Because God is always calling out to his people. Men and women, that is why you exist. You exist to represent God, to radiate God-likeness. His nature, his personality, his character, his holiness. People interact with you and they get just a, a foretaste of the very character of God, his personality, through your personality. That is what you were designed for, to, to speak on his behalf, to go places for him. Regardless of what your job is, this is your calling. This is your calling in life. God is calling out because he has created you to represent him. And every single one of you, he gives unique talents and gifts, job opportunities, so forth, different places that you can go and represent him. That is your calling. And God is always calling his creatures, whom will I send? Who will go for us? And remember, Isaiah serves as as an example. This is how we should respond. He says, Here am I. Send me, God. How about me? I'm willing. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, but God, where might I be going? Because I really like my digs here in Jerusalem. I'm in the capital city. I get to go into the temple. I can go into the palace. I'm a relative of the king. 
I don't really want to move. Can I stay here? He doesn't ask God, where am I going? He doesn't ask God, what will I be doing? Will I be successful? Will people like me? He doesn't ask any of these things. In fact, Isaiah's job description is given in the following verses. We'll look at it a little next week. It is a job description that promises failure. He's going to go out and preach and no one's going to listen to him in his generation. In future generations, his message is going to sink in. But Isaiah doesn't ask any of those things. He just says, with unqualified obedience, here am I, send me. Wherever, whenever, to whomever, I am available, God. If you are willing to use me, I I am available. That's that's the right response. Past few months, I've just been reading and rereading the book of Isaiah. I'm going to tell you, we're not going to cover every verse. Uh, 66 chapters. (laughs) Sorry, we'd be here a long time. Uh, We're just going to take sections that are representative of the whole flow of thought. But I'll tell you, as I was reading it, it's it's an incredibly rich book. It's um, considered uh, the greatest prophetic book in the Old Testament. It's also incredibly convicting and challenging. We will be called, like all servants, to respond to God's voice speaking into our lives, pointing out sin. And we'll have to choose, will we respond like Uzziah? No, or it's not me, it's not my fault. Or will we take responsibility? When God calls us to serve him, will we say, here am I, send me, whatever, whenever, wherever. As we close, I want us to just take a few moments before the Lord. Maybe God is calling you for the first time to respond to conviction. Maybe there's, there's a specific sin that has created this barrier in your relationship and God is saying, You need to to own that. You need to acknowledge it and you need to ask forgiveness. Or maybe God is calling you to serve him, to understand that the meaning of your life is to live for him. And you need to listen to that call and respond. I don't know on any given Sunday what it is that God specifically wants to say to any of you. I do know this, that God wants to speak to every one of us. He wants to speak through the book of Isaiah this semester to each one of us. And so I want us just to spend some time this morning going before the Lord saying, God, speak to me. Speak to me this morning. Speak to me this semester. Okay, let's go before the Lord and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us a clear vision of who you are. I pray, Father, that as we see you as you truly are, and we see your holiness clearly, that we would respond in humility before you, a deep sense of our own unworthiness to be in your presence, but the joy of being invited in through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we understand your calling upon our lives, that we would embrace that and we say, God, yes, here am I. Send me. Let, me, let me speak for you. Let me represent you. Let me be like you. Father, I pray for this body of believers that you would send us out into this community, onto the campus, throughout the world to be your representatives. I thank you for that privilege in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let me remind you if you want to check out the background, Second Chronicles 26 through 33, and we will go back and pick up chapter 1 next week. God bless you.